Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Gert Silvest, co-founder of TradeShift, the trade technology platform that originated in Denmark, but is now run from San Francisco. Gert is currently head of network products, which includes finance and payments. Gert, thanks for joining us. What is TradeShift? Good question. So, um, yeah, so as, as you can see from the website, we, we are actually a little bit of both or all of these things. So, so where we started, uh, we were founded in Copenhagen in 2010. We focused on digitization of the transactions that, that happened between companies. Before founding TradeShift, we all worked in public sectors. So we worked on large-scale uh, European projects on source-to-pay digitization. And, and the clear realization we had there was that very little of the information exchange between companies today is digital. So really, when we founded TradeShift, it was with the vision of accelerating that digitization. But because we could see if you could actually uh, digitize some of, of uh, the, the transactions happening between companies, invoice orders, purchase orders, catalogs, these kind of things, you could fundamentally change uh, the playing field um, of, of the trade between the companies. So, so questions like identity, uh, access to finance, access to market. And so I think that is what really interests us and how that dynamic can change if you can drive the digitization. And that's why essentially we started in the area of, of source to pay digitization. Um, and then over the years, increasingly have moved up, now taking on marketplaces and taking on financial services uh, and, and moving into payments as well as a kind of natural next step. Um, and really, based, I, th I think, on, on the evolution of, of the whole financial services area, that increasingly all of this is, is data-driven. It's close to marketplaces. It's founded in networks. And that's, that, that's essentially where, where the future of, of payments and, and financial services lies. So, so I, I see these things as, as being natural co connected, although it might sound like um, relatively a broad spectrum of, of, of services. So you, you've described, in fact, that the company has grown incrementally, if you like. It it, it's, it starts trying to digitize one area and it grows naturally in, into the adjacent areas. Has that meant, as you've grown over the years, the last last 10 years, uh, you started to compete with, with different types of entity? You, you're facing a different type of competitor in each of those four or five areas that you have gone into incrementally? Who are you competing yeah, that, with now, that... really, is what, I, is what I'm saying. Yeah, no, no, that's right. I, I, I think when we started, we we competed with with pure play, you know, accounts payable automation companies. So, for example, companies like like Bassware that that focused on on accounts payable automation, on technical integrations to digitize uh, document volumes. Um, and as we ex expanded our field, as we are moving into marketplaces, we are increasingly meeting companies like, like Cooper, for example, uh, that are doing more of the marketplace side, but less of the accounts payable uh, side. Uh, we've, as we, when we started doing supply chain financing in, in, in 2013, there's companies like, like Tolia, that is again, more of a pure play uh, supply chain financing player and early payments player. Um, and, and where we are now, I think is, is really about leveraging 
um, the synergies that are between those areas. So collectively today, um, between these areas, we have moved uh, more than $1 trillion in, in transaction volume. So just invoices and purchase orders. So you can see the foundation for, for financing is, is of course in having a, a, a large uh, digital volume. Um, and, and the way we go to market with the source to pay is by approaching very large buyers. So Fortune 500 and Fortune 5000 segment onboarding all of their supply chain. And that's, of course, also where a lot of the spending power for, for the marketplace uh, place sits. So, so increasingly, we will, of course, also meet the large B2B marketplace uh, players. So, so quite, quite broad field. But I don't really see any players out there that, that have exactly, exactly that, that mix uh, that, that we have today in the market. Could you, could you characterize a, a, a typical client for me? And give me a flavor of why it makes sense for them to deal with you across all of these four or five different areas. I can see why it's made sense for you, but how does it work for them? Sure. Yeah. So, so our customers are really across a wide range of, of, um, of industries, um, typically um, leading players in the industries. We are very large in, in transportation and logistics. So, you know, we, we have uh, uh, eight out of 10 of, of the largest players in, in this space. We're also very big in, in industrial manufacturing. So, so um, in transportation logistics, it's, it's, it's players like uh, Kühner Nagel, uh, DHL, uh, UPS, uh, industrial manufacturing. We look at companies like Unilever and so on. So, so we have around 500 of, of these big brand names uh, that they, they then bring the typically the full supply chain. So, so for many of them across direct and indirect spend. And, and obviously if you look at it from their perspective, the source to pay motion, you know, what you have in your catalog, what you order, the order collaboration, all the way up to the invoice and the final payment, you work on the same set of information. So the customers that want to digitize the invoice typically also want to digitize the order. And as, as we are in, in that backend systems, um, the, the information, the, the way you do your procurement, that data enrichment of, of let's say, the requisitions and so on flow directly over into the invoice uh, field. And what many of them want to achieve is, is a complete hands-off automated uh, process from, from you know, dealing with the payments. And you're only going to do that if you have a good uh, digital foundation all the way from, from the purchase order, maybe even further back to, to, to the contract and so on. Um, and where finance plays in is, of course, these companies want to control over their payment terms and as well on, on the seller side, um, also want that control over, over, um, over their, their cash flow. So, so, so it's, really, it's really connected. Mm-hmm. So to be clear, you're, you're working with the people who make things, you're working with the people who move things. You're also working, are you, with the people who buy things? Covers the complete chain? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, no absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so in, 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 from a sort of banking perspective, you're, you're in the business of, of, of trade finance, I, I guess. Now, trade finance is a notoriously uh, fragmented manual paper-based under digitalized uh, sector as you, as you look 
across the chain, which the supply chain, which you're supporting, what do you feel you've, you've managed to change? What have you achieved since 2010 over the last 10 years? Yeah. Uh, good question. So, so we started doing supply chain financing in, in 2013. So, and with banking partners, like initially uh, Citibank, uh, that we have, uh, you know, worked with many other banks like um, uh, HSBC and Standard Chartered and, and others. And, and I think what those programs typically uh, um, address is they, they start from the perspective of the large enterprise buyers. They target their high volume sellers um, and they typically are relatively manual in their onboarding approaches and they have a limited uh, appetite for risk. So they typically stay at, at, at the top tier of, of the sellers in the supply chain. So they don't go very wide or very, very deep. Um, and traditionally those programs have not been uh, terribly uh, data-driven. So I think one of the changes we've seen and, and where we have moved is by, we started with the SEF so, so we could ser service that, that, that market. But really, if you look at this from a risk and data perspective, if you have digitized volume between the parties, so all the way from the seller to the buyer, there's no reason why you need to limit those programs to be buyer-centric. So start from the buyer's perspective. They could equally be initiated by you know, a one-person uh, shop servicing a large uh, buyer. Because in, in, in terms of data, you understand the relationships, you have historical insight into the trade. So the risk profile is actually no worse than, than in a buyer-driven program. So I think that's one of the big changes. That is, you can start to service a completely different market of companies um, as long as you understand about what is their trade relationship. And I, I think that's, that's a fundamental difference. Um, so what we started offering with the Trade Shift Cash program, that's exactly that. It's a seller-centric program where any company in the network can opt into early payments. Um, it's not limited to the sellers that a particular buyer wants to onboard. It's, it's low uh, KYC because we understand about the relationship. Um, it's pre-approval, meaning we can actually fund for a longer period of time. And it doesn't have all the friction that the, the bank uh, programs have. And finally, we made it in a way so it's also funder agnostic. So on the back side of this uh, program, you can have many different financial players, including banks, participating in, 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 in this kind of funding system. Is that, is that a good way for me to understand what you're doing differently, that you're, uh, you're very broad in the sense you're covering the entire chain, but you're also going deep? And, and companies of all different shapes and sizes can benefit from the digitalization process. Is that a good way to, to think of how you're doing this differently? Yeah, I, I think that's, that's a great way of describing it. And then I think maybe the way we think about our assets, so what, what is the asset that we sell to, uh, to funders on the backside? We think a little bit differently about this. Um, so... Um, so, so we have more flexibility in, in, in what types of, of financing programs we, we can offer with, with different funders. So as you, as you look forward from, from what you've built so far, what are the, the problems on the horizon? What sort of problems are you starting to address now? Yeah, uh, good question. So, so 
I think we are still in a climate where a lot of funders are very conservative. And from all my conversations with both, you know, private in investors and funders and family offices and, and banks, I think the, the data-driven financing revolution is a very slow moving train. So while we see a lot of players in this space, I think if you look at the funder side, I think largely funders are still relatively conservative and slow moving in terms of what are the types of assets they're buying. And in a world, let's say in trade finance, where you've been used to buying, for example, the, the receivable as the asset, it comes with a certain package of, of uh, KYC and documentation requirements and so on that I think will look very different in, in the future because you have insight into marketplace and, and trade data, basically. So, so I think that, that that's a transition that, that is going to take time. And, but if you can change that, I, I think you can change the dynamics of those programs, who can be included in them, how much friction is there in it, how are they priced, uh, and all of this. Uh, you, you brought up the question of, uh, of data. You've said it's going to be a slow burn on the data side. You know, at Future of Finance, we think data has tremendous revolutionary potential, which is only now starting to, to be realized. What's your, what's your vision of, of how your business is going to use data? How important is it going to be as you look very far forward to the services that yeah. you provide? It's going to mean mean everything. I mean, the the way I see the the whole financial space changing. Um, you know, you saw um, uh, and financials uh, uh, trying to raise. I think it was uh, 30, 35 or thirty thirty four billion dollars uh, to create the world's largest IPO. Uh, immediately, kind of putting them in the the same same uh, size as of, of JP Morgan. And, and that to me is, is really simple that in the future, everything that is about finance and, and payments is, is gonna be uh, network-based. It's gonna be marketplace-based. So if it's not driven uh, by an insight into the actual trade transactions and trade relationships, it's not gonna be competitive. Um, and, and that's exactly, exactly the position that the, the banks are are in right now is that they are in the payment transaction, but they're typically not in the trade transaction. They don't know exactly what is the history of the trade relationships between the parties and what are the goods and services being sold and so on. So, so lacking the wider context. And I think it's obvious that all of that information has, has the opportunity to radically drive down the cost of payments, of financing, and, and widen the palette for what kind of financing can you actually offer to which segment? So I, I think it's a foundation for almost a, a true democ democratization of, of the financing. So in, in terms of who can get access to that, I see no reason why a two-person company in India shouldn't have access to almost SEF-grade uh, financial services if they have the right uh, buyer relationships somewhere in the supply chain. Uh, and that's and that's basically where where we are betting our money. It, it's going to be data driven. Mm -hmm. So every company and every business on the planet is is ostensibly potentially within scope of, of what you're doing. Now you, you know you work with banks and banks. You just mentioned the Ant Financial, J.P. Morgan comparison, for example. Banks have been sitting on a lot of data for quite a long time, but have but have not managed to utilize it 
in, in the right way, partly, I suppose, because of legacy systems, uh, partly because of, I, I guess, a, a, lack of, a lack of vision. So is the way that you're working with banks starting to plug a gap in their own capabilities? I think so. I think increasingly we see bank, uh, you know, partnering up with with the fintech players, and and I think the fintech players, uh, I actually think that it can be very good partnerships because the, the fintech players are able to do something that is very far from the bank's core business. So if you look at marketplace or source to pay automation, that is, it, it's not going to be financing per se that is going to drive the digitization of you know, a, a Fortune 500 manufacturer, but it's the core uh, processes that drive their business. And, and banks are not really well equipped to take on that. Although I think every bank that I've spoken with at some point at least had an electronic invoicing program, but most of those have been scrapped over time. So, so I think actually banks partnering up with, with the, the network players, the supply chain players and the marketplace uh, players uh, offers up some, some good partnering opportunities. And I also see increasingly banks actually uh, de-invest some of their investments that they have made into those kind of financing platforms and, and swapping them out with, with partnerships. And, and I think a, a big portion of it is, is probably also some of the regulatory constraints that banks are under that, that pr- prevents them from following certain opportunities, at, at least on their own. Do you worry you might one day be subject to those sort of regulatory constraints? Yes, uh, f- fully expect that. And and I think the, the fronts are, are being drawn at the moment. Um, again, so so one thing was uh, and financial going for a big IPO, but it also meant uh, Jack Ma suddenly disappeared for several weeks because I guess he got too big a fish for, for the Chinese government. And I th- think that's actually a trend you see everywhere in the world, that, that the flows of money flowing outside of the tra- traditional banking rails, they are now getting so large that central banks are seriously in, in 10, 15 countries considering central bank uh, digital currencies. And to me, that's, that's a defensive move. So on the one hand, you have governments doing these kind of centralized, potentially very... Um, uh, Sorry, sorry, defensive, potentially very centralized moves. On the other hand, they're working like in Europe on, on the PSD2, on initiatives that, that liberalize uh, the market. Uh, so I think for the next 10, 20 years, I think we are still going to see that kind of dance of centralization, liberalization. So I, I don't see it as an immediate threat being the subject of, of, of heavy regulation. But I, I definitely see also the banking lobby uh, investing significantly in, in pushing that agenda to, to, to get the, the fintech space regulated. And I do see governments starting to take uh, precautionary measures. Um, but I would also see, for example, uh, central bank digital currency as, as a huge opportunity for many players who still today have a, have a difficult time competing. Uh, because they're lacking some of the fundamental infrastructure for building higher, uh, higher level value added services. You, you've begun to describe pretty clearly how data flows meet value flows and become information flows and, and data and, and value become almost indistinguishable, uh, particularly when you start to think about, about digital 
currencies. So we've talked a lot about data and how it translates into value. We haven't talked much about, about technology. And I know that you're using artificial intelligence, blockchain, machine learning, uh, Internet of Things, sensors and other technologies. What are you, what are you applying these technologies to? Yeah, good question. So, so I, blockchain has actually been a big inspiration for how we how we think about our financial services. Um, a few years ago, when I was heading up our digital innovation arm, Treasury Frontiers, we we for example worked on seeing could we create a, a deep tier financing concept, and it really started by thinking about what what are the digital assets that we work with, um, and. And where we started was really to say, so if you look at an invoice, it's it's really, it's really um, an a statement, so so a claim about a, a future payment. So could we actually turn that into a digital asset? Uh, so we toyed with the idea of a smart invoice, which is basically an invoice approved by a buyer, put as a as a digital asset on the blockchain. And so making the invoice instead of just a piece of paper, then a self-executing future payment instruction. And if you think about some of the challenges that you have today in supply chain financing and early payments, where the cost and the risk come from is, is exactly answering that question. That is, what is the likelihood that in the future a buyer is going to pay this invoice or this purchase order or transaction XYZ? And, and I think by digitizing some of these contracts between companies, you, are, you, you can in fact develop completely new types of assets. And that's, and that's where I think um, you know, the, the, the data meets the payment and, and meets the digital asset. That, it, that is in some ways you can combine them. Um, and one interesting development on the blockchain side, I think if blockchain has proved anything, you know, you can have long debates about this currency or this digital asset or not. But I think beyond doubt, what, what blockchain has showed you can do is you can create interoperable marketplaces for digital assets. And that's, I think, is a very, very significant and very, very interesting things. I think it can also be replicated kind of off blockchain. But I think we've kind of seen in the world, it can be true and it can drive bigger innovation in, in the digital assets. So, so that's one of the ways that, that we are looking towards blockchain today. I think another interesting development is, for example, Luxembourg just recently passed a, a digital asset law that, um, that explicitly talks about putting securities on the blockchain. Um, and again, I think it's, it's one of these kind of small developments that, that helps pave the way for not, not just the payment, uh, but also how traditional securities that, that exist in a very well-defined regulatory regime, how they can be reflected, for example, on the blockchain in, in the digital world and be recognized as such. As such. Um, so I, I think that's interesting. Um, if you look at the AI side of things, so um, we started early on investing in, in machine learning. So, so back in 2012 or at least early fall <laughs> compared to when we were founded. And, and we started by doing automatic capture, for example, of images of uh, invoices, turning them into digital invoices. Um, and now increasingly where we're using AI machine learning or ADA as, as, as we call that, that uh, capability on, on our platform 
it's it's in the process uh, automation and prediction. So if if we look at the intersection between source to pay and and financing, I think for example, uh, prediction of of the the acceptance of an invoice is the first step, and which we are doing already today. And that's an example of an area where you can say you can both use the, the AI for completely practical internal processes, speeding things up, so predicting what's going to be the coding and, and the approval of this invoice. And you can increase, you can slowly increase people's comfort level in this. Um, you can also turn it around and look at the financing side and say, that's exactly what we're trying to, to, to predict when we are pricing uh, early payments, for example, that is what what is what is the likelihood that this invoice is, is going to be paid. So one of the things we, we we are building up, that's basically a data track that says how good are we actually at predicting this payment of the invoice. So we have a historical record that we can see even for seller buyer relationships that might not be very long, where you cannot empirically look into what's the dilution and payment history here. We can actually have a pretty good prediction of that. Um, and Internet of Things, any anything interesting you're doing in that area? I, I would say it's mostly on the on the research uh, stage. So so we've been looking into, uh, for example, uh, food safety in supply chains. So so linking the the signals from 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 ships and um, uh, what you call them coolers and, and things like that. In, in a meat supply chain. We did a few pilots in that. And, and I think it's it's interesting from the perspective of what, what is what is the data that that how can you augment the data in the supply chain? But it's not an area we are actively investing in right now. But I've I, I definitely see it as a future opportunity. But uh, yeah. To, to go back to your, your core business, you know, digitalizing uh, supply chains. Uh, a lot of companies that we talk to seem to think that digitalizing or digital transformation of their company amounts to sticking stuff in the cloud and then applying a robotic process automation to what they're doing already, whereas what they really ought to be doing is, is rethinking the entire process. Is that a, an issue or a problem you come up against as well? Sure. Um, I think you often end up talking about digitization with with uh, with the types of enterprise that we, we we talk to. And I think very often when you talk about digitization and your digitization agenda, it's it's very much an in, inside out agenda. So you look at, at core processes where you can improve the efficiency, maybe the transparency inside of the company. And I think our perspective is is goes more towards the, the outside in. So when we started in 2010, it, it was a measly 4% of all invoices that were digitized. I think we are hovering today in the 10 to 15% range. Mm -hmm. And as you can see, businesses increasing swap over to e-commerce, it's, it's like a high train speed that's, that's just coming. And you can imagine for every e-commerce transaction on the backside of that in the supply chain, you have maybe a factor 10 in terms of transactions. And still today, all of that is not digital. So we have a lot of com conversations about rethinking that, that whole agenda. And I think a lot of companies get it. Um, um, but one of the starting points is really to look at how do we break down the, the silos of data that you have in the company? 
And I think the whole conversation we had about uh, the trade shift areas of source to pay financing marketplace and so is a good example of if you actually combine some of that data, suddenly you can offer financing to your whole supply chain on, on, on very different terms and offer benefits, not just for yourself, but also for, for the counterparties, your whole ecosystem that you want to have with you on, on the ride towards digitization. You've mentioned that the, the percentage of invoices which are digitalized has gone from 4% to maybe 10, 15%, so it's a long way to go. And you're obviously operating in a, in a growth market, but you're clearly seeing enough data to publish uh, an index, you call it of global trade health. Uh, as we look at the performance of that index now, what does it tell us about what the pandemic has done to world trade over the last 12 months? Yeah, uh, good question. So, so one of one of the things we could see was um, was about the interplay between uh, purchase orders and and invoices, which I think is is interesting because because you can say a rise in 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 purchase orders um, tells us something about. Um, about how the economy is, is correcting itself. Um, so for example, in Q3 last year, we saw a resurgence in, in orders um, with, you know, by, by far the biggest resurgence in, in the US, um, followed by a little bit slower uh, resurgence in, in, uh, in Europe and, and, and UK. But when we then looked at the, the invoicing patterns, we can see that on average, that suppliers experienced 15.6 uh, days later payments compared to pre-COVID. So as, as we hit areas where orders, order volume either hit pre-COVID times or, or, or higher than pre-COVID times, we're actually seeing that that payment terms are not following, and and add to that, um, we are already seeing um, average payment times having jumped up to to sixty days plus. So 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 taking a jump during during the COVID period. So so I think it's going to be interesting to see that that you have sellers that are then in this kind of uh, almost triple crunch of searching orders, but longer payment uh, times. Um, so, so they are, they are actually in, in, in a pretty, uh, serious credit crunch. And at least what we saw in the last, uh, financial, um, uh, crisis was that a lot of supply chains got disrupted because as sellers further down the line started uh, defaulting, then, then it started impacting, uh, the large companies as well. So clearly the pandemic is creating liquidity issues. It's, it's getting harder to get paid on time. Uh, are you able to help companies solve that problem? Yeah, absolutely. So, so that's exactly what we tried to do with the, the cash um, product that, that we launched uh, last year. And, and that is really to create what you could call a seller-centric financing model versus a buyer-centric. So it essentially operates on the same type of data as the SAF programs, but has the potential to have a, a much further reach. So basically sellers of, of 
the buyers that we have in our network can opt into this program. Um, it gives them uh, early payments, so 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 really one day uh, after issuing the invoice payments, and it gives them a, an opportunity they typically will not have in SEF programs that that is reserved for the larger players. And where we've also seen banks being actually more conservative here here during uh, during COVID, and um, it also gives them an opportunity they might not have outside of the network because banks don't have a very good transparency in, inside of their business and, and been more risk averse. And that's why we are leveraging the fact that we can know about six, 12, 18 month trade relationships, payment pattern, dilution patterns, and so forth to, to, offer, to offer that to, to sellers in the network. Uh, I have one, one, one final question, which arises out of something you've mentioned a number of times, which is KYC, know your, know your client. Uh, one of the mm-hmm. big underlying structural changes in the trade finance business is correspondent banks exiting the business because they cannot be confident they understand uh, the underlying client of their, of their counterpart. Now, is, first, tell me what you do in, in KYC. And secondly, tell me, is what's happening in the correspondent banking or trade finance banking industry an opportunity for you? Yeah, I definitely think it's an opportunity. So so I think the key thing to understand is, is that we are looking on at the buyer-seller relationship and we have digital volume. That that means from the start, we, we always have this kind of two, two-sided view on the transaction. So I think one of the challenges in, in traditional factoring is that you typically uh, mainly have have the seller view on things so you you don't quite have the insight when when is an invoice approved or when is it not <clears throat> you you can act, you can buy the receivable and and get paid in the future from the buyer but but since these are often paper-based processes you you typically have little insight into that relationship and and that's that's why i think in that we have the two-sided <clears throat> the two-sided view on, on these transactions. And that fundamentally means more information and, and there, are, there, are, there are for lower risk. Um, so one of the structures we set up is, is essentially a multi-funder structure that still allows us to intercept the payment, but include many different kinds of, of funders on the backside. And that means when we are serving up finance to, to the companies in the network, we can choose between funders that have different uh, appetite for risk. And that means we can go much broader, uh, but essentially we can serve up the same kind of data asset to, towards uh, those funders. Um, and we can even mix uh, those uh, kind of programs. So, so we can address a larger proportion of, of the sellers program. Um, so not everything we can do today, but but that's that's a fundamental infrastructure we are setting up, and and that that's that's what we we are enabling with with this setup. Now you say you you have insight into the seller and the purchaser as well, which gives you an advantage. And I can see that it is. In terms of what you know about the purchaser, do you have any understanding of is this purchaser who they say they are, and are they good for the money as well? Do you have that depth of insight into sort of KYC? Yeah, no, definitely. And and if you look at the network, so so today it comprises 1.5 million companies or so, 
but our sales motion on the enterprise side goes towards the, the very large enterprises. So typically our buyers are the Fortune 5000 segment. So they are well understood, um, you know, verified. They have a huge trade volume, typically many, many billions of dollars going on. And they, of course, have all the, 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 the trade controls in place. Um, also on their side, you know, vetting, onboarding the sellers, understanding who they are, doing their own KYC and so on. Um, so, so that of course gives us a, a great confidence in who are the companies that, that we are that we are trading with, and on the purchaser side, these are the companies that we have a direct commercial relationship with. So, so, yes, yes, we are very confident on that. Uh, just one final, very trivial question: Do you find legal entity identifiers useful in that process? LEIs. Yeah, we, we have actually looked uh, quite a bit into it. Um, I think it's a very interesting standard. And obviously, it can do a lot of the things that that we would like. So so we actually asked the question, could we give uh, a lay to every single company in the network? Because from, from a financing perspective, that would ease things. I think the challenge with the lay system currently is that Number one, it's 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 one standard of, of several uh, competing. Number two, it, it of course came from the financial system, so um, it it hasn't quite gone down to 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 the level of, of companies where we could see it be adopted. Um, but it's definitely one we're keeping our eye on. We can see it can potentially become cheap to to create an issue, and that, there's increasing uh, competition in the space. So so we are we are keeping an eye on it. And do you do you think digital identities would be helpful for corporates? That digital, sorry, I didn't catch it. Do you think digital identities would be helpful for corporate entities on the purchaser no, and buyer side? Absolutely, I, I think companies go around and you know pay 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 the same companies again and again for 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 sharing credit data, and. And it's fundamental every time a buyer onboards a seller to, to do trade with them, they, they run a, a fairly heavy uh, due diligence process. For some companies, it's you know two to four weeks of due diligence or something like that. So it seems obvious that if we have a, 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 a trustworthy identifier system that, that was widely accepted, that that could make that easier. And also from a financing perspective, make that whole enrollment and onboarding much, much smoother experience and, and create more competition. So, so I see a lot of benefits from it. And in the end, I think it's less about technology. I, th I think it's about getting the adoption and, and driving through the standards and so on. And do you have a view on how we should create digital identities and get them adopted? Is it a governmental thing or can it be done by the private sector? I think it could uh, potentially be done by the private sector because I, I I do think it's it's a volume game. It could also be a private public partnerships. Um, I think what we saw, for example, in the Danish public sector was a pattern that spread to the rest of, of Europe when when Denmark started creating a digital standard for the invoice. It was based on an open standard called UBL, but they actually ratified that into law and said this is what an invoice is going to look like. And in amount of very short time, it drove rapid adoption of electronic invoicing in Denmark. And it's, it's since been a pattern that's been been uh, accompanied by, by other uh, countries and in the in the European Union. 
So I think it's an example where the government goes in and sets the standard, but apart from that, stays back a little bit. It's not that they created huge infrastructures to support it, but basically gave it out there to the private sector and said, anybody can implement the standard. And, and it gave rise to, it actually drove a lot of volume. And that's in the end, what, what made some of these standards win was that in the private sector, they ended up driving volume. And, and maybe some similar things could, could be done with the, with the, with the lay. Okay, so best, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you.